from Bayside Church International, Victor Harbour. This is Chad Mansbridge. Good morning. I'm excited. I've had three coffees today, but I was up at four this morning. So if, um, if I hit a wall at some stage, you'll understand. But today I had the privilege, if, if you're unfamiliar with sort of a church environment, um, what we uh, enjoy spending time doing as sort of this part of our, our meeting or our service is to open up the scripture, uh, something Billy Graham was famous for holding in his hand and we want to talk about the most important thing ever. Last week we started a, a series, um, we're going to be working or looking through a book in the Bible called the Gospel of John and the Gospel of John exists to communicate the most important thing ever and it is how to find eternal life which is only one way, one key, one guarantee to eternal life which is through knowing Jesus Christ. The most important thing you can ever know is Jesus because that is the only thing that will count for eternity and so I'm really excited to be able to speak about the most important thing ever. And those of you who know me, you also know I'm willing to take a few detours along the way, but we nevertheless will focus on the most important thing ever. I want to continue our series today through the Gospel of John. We've given it a title. This series is called Revealed. Revealed. We're going to be spending seven weeks unveiling the seven signs of Christ in the Gospel of John. So last week, are you with me? All right. Last week, we looked at some of the peculiarities of the book of John. Uh, it is the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it really stands out among the others. The content of John is quite unique. The content, or over 90% of what we read in John is not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, some of the words that are used um, in the gospel of John are really unique. The gospel of John uses the word life, and the word believe, and the word glory, and the word reveal more than all the other Gospels, the other three Gospels put together. So the content of the Gospel is quite peculiar. The uh, way the Gospel is written, the style of writing is quite peculiar, which may come down to the question of the author uh, and how different he is as an individual, which we won't get into today. Uh, needless to say that it is a little unclear who the exact author of this Gospel is. But one thing that is very clear about the Gospel of John is its purpose. As you read through chapter after chapter after chapter, we, get, we come to the end of the book effectively, the end of chapter 20, and the author says this in chapter 20 and verse 30. He tells us the reason, the whole purpose he is writing the book when he says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus did many miraculous signs and I haven't written them all down but the ones I have written down are deliberately being chosen for this purpose so that you who haven't seen Jesus eye to eye you who weren't there walking with him, eating with him as the author was, that those of you who have not met him physically may still believe that he is who he says he is 
and that when you believe in him, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of John's gospel, to reveal Jesus so that we may believe in him and that by believing in him, we may inherit the gift of eternal life. And that is something that I think is really important. And so he says there's a lot of things that Jesus did, a lot of signs, but he's chosen, the author of John, has chosen seven signs throughout the gospel up to this point, seven signs that he deliberately chose to reveal who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to do in the next seven weeks. We're going to be looking at something of each of these signs to ask ourselves, what is it about these signs that Jesus did, that John records, that shows us who Jesus is? And because of that, shows us who God is. Because as I said last week, Jesus had two main purposes, a twofold purpose for coming to this planet. He had a ministry of revelation and a ministry of reconciliation. The first task Jesus had was to reveal what God was like, to reveal the invisible God. And he says that in John 17, and just before he's killed, he says, Father, I have finished the work you gave me to do. I have brought you glory by doing what you told me. And what you told me to do was to reveal your name to people. So that was his first job. It was a ministry of revelation. Jesus came to the earth to show us what God is like. And secondly, after that prayer, he goes to the cross because after showing us what God is like, he then died a cruel death on a Roman cross to pay the price to reconcile us to that God. He wanted to show us how good God was so that people would accept the gift of reconciliation and want to know that God that he represents. Jesus had a twofold ministry purpose, a gift of revelation and a ministry of reconciliation. And that's why we say around here that our ministry as well, our calling in life is number one, to know him, to be reconciled to God. The most important thing you can do is to know him. And through knowing him, we also are called to show him to others. We are also called to reveal him. Come on, say reveal. Reveal. It's like a magic word, really, isn't it? It's like, ta-da, reveal. There's, Greek, there's connotations in there about unveiling, but I won't go into all that because I don't feel any need to impress you. Let's go to John chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to read. If you have your Bible, please uh, read with me, and uh, I'll be reading this story and then explaining a few things as we go. Holy Spirit, I really pray that you would speak to people today. Help me do a really good job, please. And I pray that you would not only speak to people's heads today, but most importantly, you would engage with people's hearts, that you would meet people that no matter who is listening to me right now on this podcast or here live in this room, that no matter where we're at with our relationship with you, that you would draw people closer and nearer to you. So please reveal Jesus to us in greater ways. Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. John chapter (sighs) 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana, in Galilee. Jesus' mum was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. A wedding at a place called Cana in Galilee. This is around about 15 kilometres away from, G- from where Jesus grew up in a town called Nazareth, so it's in his home region. Uh, they are there for a wedding of what is probably a relative. We're not really sure The bride and groom are unnamed in this story, which is very typical of the author. He likes to keep people anonymous. 
even himself, he just says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't give us his name, right? So, uh, but he likes to keep these people anonymous. And Jesus is rocking up to a wedding with some family there. Bit of history. When we read the Bible, as those of you who are reading the Bible with me on YouTube, you've been reminded this week that we are reading an ancient document some two, three thousand, three and a half thousand year old stories. And it, it is written in a completely different historical context to you and I. The front of my Bible says copyright NIV 1984. But this book was not written in 1984. All right? Very Orwellian, isn't it? It wasn't written in 1984. It was written thousands of years ago, translated numerous times, and this, all these stories we read, we have to do our best to put our minds back into the culture of the day. So Jesus and his mates and his mum are rocking up to a wedding. Essentially, in these days, the Jews had uh, three major components to a wedding that you and I, we typically get in reverse order nowadays, but this is how a Jewish wedding worked. The first thing they did is they engaged in a contract, then consummation, and then celebration. The Jewish wedding began with a contract uh, or a covenant, if you like. And essentially, that was a legal agreement between the father of the bride and the bride and the groom or the prospective groom. All right. So the boy would rock up and he'd go to the father of the bride. OK, you can see where this tradition comes from. And he'd talk to the father about marrying the daughter. I'd like to marry your daughter. The daughter would be absolutely be included in this discussion and you're going to see that as you read through Genesis with me on YouTube this week. The, the, the women are always consulted and give their approval, okay? And one of the ways they did this historically, this is awesome, is that the groom would come with a bottle of wine and after him and the dad had talked, if the dad was okay with it, the groom would pour wine into a glass and he'd take a sip and then it was up for the girl to see whether she would drink from that glass or not. And drinking from that glass of wine was her way of saying, I'm in. I accept the deal. As I explain these things, some of you who have good Bible knowledge are going to be thinking of the life of Jesus and some of the typology here, okay? You're going to enjoy this. And so they had this contract and the dad, the bride and the groom would negotiate this deal because it did involve finances, okay? The whole dowry situation and whatever. Uh, the father of the bride, he was losing someone in his family that could help with the family business and everything. So there was this financial relationship. It's not that he owned the woman like she was a commodity, but he as the dad wanted to make sure that that girl was going to be well looked after. And so there's a financial arrangement that took place before the groom and the father. Once that was done, it was signed, put in the synagogue and those, that couple were declared married. And then the groom would go back to his dad's house and start getting preparations ready. He'd start preparing a place for her and he'd do that by adding a room to his father's house. My father's house has many rooms and the, the groom would go and he'd prepare a room, an extension on the family home pre to prepare a place for the bride to come. And that would typically take a year 
And if you read Genesis, it takes up to seven years for Jacob in this week's reading. It takes up to seven years for him to get his stuff together in order to be worthy of that girl, in order for the father of the bride to say, okay, you deserve my, you're okay, I trust you now with my daughter. So it was also a space where the father could watch to see whether or not he was game enough to hand the daughter over. But they were already considered married. And that's why at Christmas time, when we read the Christmas story, it says that Joseph found out that Mary was preggers and it says he wanted to divorce her quietly because it, to him, he just thought, well, she's done the dirty on him. And the reason it says she, he wanted to divorce her, even though they hadn't had sex yet, they weren't living together yet, was because they were legally married. All right? It's not like our engagement today doesn't work like that. It was they were legally married, which meant they had to legally get divorced, even though they weren't living together and sleeping together. Okay, so the groom would go away, he'd get ready for the preparations and after a year or so he would come back but he would only come back for his bride when the father of the bride said, okay, you've shown me, you've lived up to your end of the bargain, you're welcome now to come get my daughter. And the father of the groom, his job was to make sure the extension was built right and that his son had done enough, a good enough job on the house. So the son... The prospective groom did not know the day or hour that he would come back for his bride. It wasn't up to him. It was up to the fathers. So I don't know the day or the hour. I'm going to come back for you, darling. Okay, thanks for the wine. I'll come back. I'm going to take a while to prepare. I don't know when it's going to be. Only the fathers know. He'd go back and make preparations. Then he'd come back and when he came back, he'd have a bit of a procession with him because his dad would give the tick of approval, the bride's dad would give the tick of approval, he'd grab some mates together and they would make a procession. And often what they do in order to make it look cool, okay, because you want to make a bit, of a, a bit of a show of it, is you do this at night time. You come get your bride and come to her at night because at night time you can carry torches and lanterns and lights. Okay. Now, the bride had a warning that the, the prospective husband was coming because she knew her dad had given approval, so it could be any day now. So her job is to have her bridesmaids ready, make sure they've got lanterns next to their bed that have oil in them just in case he comes at night. If he comes at night, we need to be ready to meet him. Okay. So the groom's over here, he's got his boys together and they leave the village and they walk towards the bride's house and as they walk, they sound the trumpet. <laughs> called a chauffeur, they sound the trumpet and they raise their voices saying, the groom is coming, the groom is coming. So we've got the sounding of a trumpet, the raising of voices because the bridegroom is coming. He's coming for his bride. And as he's coming for his bride, the brides hear about this, they wake up, they're ready, we've been waiting for this, light jet lamps, quick, we're going to go out and meet him. And what they do is they take their lamps and they'd walk out of the house and they'd walk to go and meet the groom in his procession. Okay, there's a Greek word for this that's something if, oh, I can't remember. And he'd go out and he'd, it's all there in the Bible somewhere, okay? Uh, and he'd go out and he'd meet, the, 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 the girls would meet the boys, okay? And then they'd turn back around and go to the bride's house. And it would be at the bride's house that the next C on the list would happen. They've just had the contract and now they have the consummation. And I won't go into as much detail about that, all right? Uh, we're talking about a primitive society, okay, thousands of years ago, don't sue me. So they would have a, a consummation there and it needed to take place at the father's, at the bride's house because um, her, the, the nobility of her virginity was very important to her family for them to 
um, know that that was true. I won't say any more than that because otherwise it sounds a bit gross. So that's happening over there. They're being, the wedding is being, the marriage is being consummated. And there are witnesses to this. That's what the girls and the guys were. They'd be in like an adjacent room or an adjacent tent, quote, witnessing. I mean, my goodness, okay. But um, it's ancient culture, okay? Um, and that, then it would be consummated. Then what happens is celebration. Contract, consummation, celebration. They come out of the tent and now they go back to the father's house and the groom's house for the wedding feast. Okay, because it was the groom's job to come up with the bucks and pay for the wedding. There's a tradition we got upside down, all right? Okay, <laughs> and it was the groom's job. That's what that year was for. He had to go. He had to make preparations. He had to get his bucks in line, get his financial order, get his financial life in order. He had to, make, he had to prove to the dad that he could look after that girl of his. And so his, the, the groom's job, his, that groom's family, their job is to provide the feast. And so they're at the bride's house and all the brides, they come, they make this procession and they come and they go to the groom's house. That is where the bride and groom are going to live and that's where they have a feast. And typically that feast goes for about a week, all right? So there's a lot of food. And not only is there a lot of food, but they're Jewish, so there's a lot of wine as well. Jew, wine is part of that Jewish culture back then. So they're drinking, they're eating, they're celebrating for seven days. And traditionally, the reason they pick the number seven, and you can see this in Judges with Samson, and you'll see this in your readings this week with Jacob, where he marries you know, his first wife, that's a whole other thing, and um, he cele- they celebrate for seven days. Okay, So it's all there in the Bible. They celebrate for seven days and then that's it. The celebration's over and they start their new life together. There you go. That's interesting, isn't it? So, Jesus, oh, the reason they lasted seven days is because traditionally the Jews looked at the creation story. On the first day, God created this and this and this. On the seventh day, he rested and the very next thing that happened is Adam and Eve are joined together. So, they had a wedding that lasted, celebration that lasted for seven days. And that is the celebration that Jesus is rocking up to at the groom's house. And who, what's the name of this groom? We don't know, Bill. Yeah, fine. Okay, whatever. It's Bob, okay? We don't know. We don't know who this couple are, but we do know that Jesus and his mum somehow have some authority there. I'm suspicious. I wonder if it might be one of Jesus' sisters. Because the Gospels, not John, but I think it's Mark, tells us that Jesus had four brothers that are listed by name and he had sisters, plural. I've just thought this week, I wonder if Jesus was the eldest of seven kids. Pure speculation, but that would be cool because number seven, right? (laughs) And Colossians calls him the firstborn over creation. Oh, I don't know. Don't read too much into it. Okay, so that's that. That's okay. Next verse. Let's just keep going. Verse 3. When the wine was gone... Oh, here's a drama. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. So his mum said to the servants... Listen, just do whatever he says. Now listen, I know in English, 
woman, what does this have to do with me? Sounds a bit rude, okay? But it's not that way in the Aramaic, all right? This is a translation issue. He's not being rude. This is a, it is a respectful term in Aramaic. But he speaks to her, or that's why it's a, in, in this translation, they put the word dear there because it is a, a term of endearment. Dear woman, talking to his mum, uh, what does this have to do with me? This wedding had a problem and the problem was that the wine had run out. The Greek word there for the wine had run out literally means to fall short. I'm going to bring that up later, so remember that. They fell short. Okay, the wine fell short. Someone had stuffed up and not ordered enough wine. Someone whose job it was to prepare for the wedding didn't put in a big enough order with the local cellar door and have enough wine in stock and he had fallen short. And we can speculate as to what, what this had to do with Mary. Was she just being a busybody and sort of hinting at her son, they've got no wine? Was she asking Jesus, hinting that he should do something? I know none of you mums ever do this, but was she hinting that Jesus should do something because it was just a practical need and that's what you do? You just ask your big son, your older son to do something? One thing we know about Jesus' family, he's got four brothers, a couple of sisters, we don't know how many. Um... But what we also know is that at this stage of Jesus' life, we don't see any mention of Joseph anymore. So after, at this age, when Jesus is about 30 here, we don't see any mention of Joseph mentioned. So again, it's speculation, but he might be dead by now. We, we don't know. So maybe, sorry, Joe. Um, but, so he might be dead. So maybe, maybe Mary's just saying to Jesus, listen, mate, can you duck down the sip and save and get some, a few bottles of Shiraz? Maybe it wasn't a practical need that she brought up. Maybe it was emotional. Because Mary knew what it was like to have a wedding and it not go according to plan. Maybe Mary was deeply sympathising with the bride because Mary had one day been a bride. And at her wedding... She was up to duff. And rumours obviously had been circulating as to how that came to be. And Mary, while she knew the truth of where that baby came from, she knew what it was to experience shame and to look at people in the eye when they're there at her wedding and just have shame communicated to her. In fact, she might have had a lot of people that didn't rock up to her wedding again because ancient culture, culture that day, that would have been highly shunned. Mary knew what it was like to be embarrassed at her own wedding. Maybe she really felt for this bride. She's like, I don't want, whoever that bride was, might have been a daughter, don't know. Maybe she felt, I don't want to see another bride go through that embarrassment. Something needs to happen. So it might have been practical, it might have been emotional, or it might have been spiritual. Maybe Mary said something to Jesus because she was prophetic and her spirit was busting and her spirit knew, this is an opportunity, Jesus, for you to show people who you really are, who I know you are, who I've known you've been for 30 years. And possibly that's the most logical explanation because Jesus picked something up from her and he said, hang on, this is why my hour has not come yet. And this phrase, my hour has not come, comes up in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, a number of times. 
which is the hour for his glory to be made known to people. And as he gets closer to his death, he says, my hour has come, my hour is coming, my hour is coming. Here he says, my hour has not yet come, so don't ask me to do something that's going to expose who I really am, yet. But Jesus, while he did not want to go public yet, still comes up with a solution. But he does so really discreetly. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons of water. That's about over 100 litres in those six jars. Okay, These weren't water jars for drinking. These were water jars for washing your hands from a, 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 a religious ritual. It wasn't a Bible ritual. It was an added ritual from the Pharisees and um, early first century or whatever Judaism. Okay, So it was an added law that they made up. It was a man-made rule about washing your hands in these stone jars. And Jesus sees an opportunity when he sees these here. He said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now go and draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from. But the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. You could just imagine these guys are standing there like, I'm taking this holy water from the holy hand-washing trough, uh, tubs, whatever, right? I'm taking that to give to the guy to drink. That's not done. You don't do that with holy water. But I'll do whatever Jesus says because Mary's here, right? She'll slap us if if we don't do what Jesus says. So I'm going to take this guy water and he drinks it and says, wow, this is wine. The servants knew, who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said to him, everyone else that I know, brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after all the guests have had too much to drink. That word there, too much to drink, is that what it says in this translation? Had too much to drink? is used about five or six times in the Bible. Every other time it's used, it says drunk. After the guests are drunk. It literally means intoxicated. Okay? Our English translators, they struggle with putting drunk in here because I don't want to communicate that Jesus is somehow encouraging drunkenness. All right, so that's their own sort of bias happening here. But literally every other time that word's used, it's, it's translated intoxicated. He says, listen, most people, every other wedding I've been to, people bring out the good wine first, get everyone <clears throat> happy, and then they bring out the cheap, nasty stuff from the cask just to you know, keep up the, keep up the cask wine. Yeah, great. So they, they drink out the disgusting stuff. But he says this, but you have saved the best until now. Who's this master of the ceremony talking to? The groom. The one who was to blame. The one whose fault it was for not preparing enough is now getting the credit for having really great wine at the end of the feast. One of the things that really stood out to me this week as I've read this story again, you know, this is called the... Uh, first miracle of Jesus and some people we call it the first public miracle 
But this miracle is not very public at all. It's really private. The groom? No idea. Clueless. Typical, typical husband. Didn't make enough preparations. Clueless about what's going on, all right? Luckily, he's got a mother-in-law that's dealing with it all right, behind the scenes. So, so he's clueless. The, the bride, she doesn't know. None of the families know. The only people, the master of the ceremonies, the, the guy who's in charge of catering, he doesn't know Jesus. The only people that know that Jesus has done this were the servants. And a few other people, which we see in the next verse. Verse 11. What Jesus did here at Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And because of this, his disciples believed in him. So his disciples saw it. A couple of servants saw it, but everyone else just partied on, party on Garth. They just partied on and had no idea that Jesus was responsible for this. There are seven signs in the Gospel of John leading up to Jesus' death. The first one is incredibly private because it's not my hour yet. The first one's at a wedding. The last one's at a funeral with a dude called Lazarus. And that is the opposite of private. That is very public. And that public miracle of Lazarus resulted in hundreds, if not thousands, of people in Jerusalem believing in Jesus and wanting to see him. The whole reason that Jesus comes into Jerusalem with a triumphal entry and there's thousands, possibly hundreds, we don't know, just a crowd, right? There's thousands of, thousands sounds better. As a preacher, I've got to, you know, exaggerate things a little. So thousands of people are gathered there and the whole reason that they gathered in their masses is because Lazarus was raised from the dead because Jesus' hour had come. But at this stage, Jesus' hour hadn't come. He saw a need and he met it and he did so in a very discreet way and just a handful of people knew about it. That's my Jesus. Good story. So, and the other Gospels don't record this. So John's got exclusive uh, copyright on this one. Okay, two ways we can go in talking about this story. This one, this way over here I'm going to focus on. That's the second way. But I'm going to, first of all, just to describe a few things about this story that are profoundly theological. And some of you are going to switch off because I know that's the way you're wired. That's fine. Come back to me in five minutes and I'll talk about something more practical, okay? But the first thing I'm going to do, in John's Gospel, it's very layered. All right, this dude... This author is really multi-layered. He knows what he's doing. He's writing very practical stories, but with every practical story, there is real depth to it. So I'm going to start over here and just mention a few of the depths that are possibly seen in this story. This is a story that is all about creation. This word on the screen here, the first of his miraculous signs. The word first there, in more literal translations, is the word beginnings. It says there in literal translation, this, the beginnings of signs. And the reason it says beginnings is because it's the same word in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. So John's communicating to his readers at the end of this story, this is the beginning. 
The beginning, the beginning. It's how he started the letter. In the beginning, in the Greek Old Testament, it's Genesis 1 verse 1. That's what Jewish people would have thought as soon as they saw this. They said, in the beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning. That's Genesis 1. And if you read this story carefully, it is the story of new creation. It said there in the first verse we read that on the third day he went to a wedding. Now, in a very practical sense, that could mean a Tuesday, third day of the week. But if you read the previous chapter, the third day is actually the seventh day. Because in the previous chapter, remember the Bible was not written with chapters and verses. That's sometimes very unhelpful. That's why I'm telling you to read your Bible in big chunks because you miss it. The story does not start with on the third day. The story starts in chapter 1 where it talks about in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, the Word was with God, and the Word was the light of men. The light has come and darkness has not understood it. For the first 28 verses of John chapter 1, it talks about the day where darkness and and light are separated. What's the story of Genesis 1, the first day? God separated light from dark with His Word. As you keep reading John, chapter 1, it's in verse 29, it says, the next day, John the Baptist comes. The next day. So day number two, stay with me. Day number two, John the Baptist comes and says, I baptise with water, but he's going to baptise with the Spirit and the Spirit comes down from heaven. What's day number two of Genesis 1? God separates water from sky. John the Baptist with water, Jesus with the Spirit. In John 1, it says the next day, verse 35, some of the Baptist disciples see Jesus and they start to follow him. They leave John the Baptist and start to follow Jesus and one of them is called Peter. What happens on the third day of creation in Genesis? God separates between the water and the land and he brings out of the water land. He brings out rock. Peter comes away from John the Baptist from the water and is called rock on the third day. On the fourth day in John chapter 1, Jesus decides to go to Galilee and he comes across a guy called Nathaniel and he says, you are a true Israelite. And he says, and I am Jacob's ladder that joins heaven to earth. Okay, I'm Jacob's ladder and I'm leaving Jerusalem and I'm going to Galilee. What happens on the fourth day of the creation story? The sun, moons and stars are put in place to tell God's people when to worship. Seasons, days, years, their whole festival of worship was designed around the sun, moon and stars. Jesus comes to Nathaniel and says, I'm leaving that system of worship. I am the one that joins heaven to earth. You don't worship in a location, you worship through me. And here in Genesis, we have the distinction, the separation of true worship and false worship. Worshipping the stars or worshipping the God who created the stars. Is this too complex for you? Is, am I, am, am I, I may be speaking of you, you've got to go and read John. And then after these four days in John 1, it says on the third day he came to a wedding. Because it took two days to walk to Cana. So on the seventh day, the wedding takes place. Adam and Eve come together. Jesus performed this miracle. or Jesus came to a wedding on the seventh day. And we see this wonderful act of creation retold through the living word who was there in the beginning. 
But that's profoundly spiritual and I don't want to speak about that today. It's also profoundly spiritual and theological, the significance in the jars. There are six of them. Man was created on the sixth day. These were ceremonial jars. That six represents man-made religion that always runs out. That is bland and boring. It represented the religion of Jesus' day. And Jesus' miracle speaks about a new way to relate to God. This dead religion, six days, ceremonial washing, it's not even biblical. Jesus says, I'm replacing that with new wine. And wine speaks of life and celebration and liberty and freedom. And so there's this profound theological picture here of the old covenant being replaced by the new covenant, a new and living way by Jesus. And so Jesus does not need grapes to make wine because he is the grapevine. He is the new vine. And if it was alcoholic, they reckon that if you just make grape juice and ferment it, it's about 3 to 4% alcohol. If you add yeast to it, it can get to over 10 And everyone on Google argues about how alcoholic this wine was. You can go do that own research. I don't really care. The the picture is he did not need grapes to make this wine because he is the vine. And he did not need yeast to give it an extra boost because yeast is the kingdom of God. Yeast is words of faith in the scripture. And Jesus had that as well. All he needed was water and he could transform that dead thing into something entirely new. It's pretty cool. But I don't want to speak about that today. I want to speak about something more practical. But while we're over here, the other significant thing about this story is that the Greeks in about 1000 BC or more, we've got archaeological evidence that talks about a Greek god known as Dionysus. D-I-O-N-Nusus, okay? Dionysus. And the Greek god Dionysus was the son of Zeus, born to a human woman. It's the only Greek god born to a mortal woman. The son of Zeus, the god of gods in the Greek mythology, the son of Zeus born to a human woman. Dionysus was the god-man, half god, half man. A bit like monkey magic, right? Half god, half man. And Dionysus, get this, was known as the god of wine. He is credited in Greek mythology as being the God who discovered how to ferment wine, how to ferment grapes and make it into wine. This is a story of superiority. Because Jesus comes along, fully God, chapter 1, fully man, because he had a mum, chapter 2. He comes along the full God-man, and he just does not discover how wine is made. He makes the stuff. He makes it out of water. He performs a miraculous sign to demonstrate he is superior to one of the greatest Greek gods that there were in that time. And this is a very Jewish thing to do. You're going to see this next week when we start reading Exodus. And in the Exodus story, when the plagues come on Egypt, okay, you can research this if you like, if it flicks your switch. the, The plagues come on Egypt and every time those plagues come, Those plagues represent how God of Moses is superior to those gods of Egypt. Okay? It's a very Jewish thing to say, our God is superior, our God is superior, our God is superior. And so as John's starting this gospel, he's speaking to people who know Hebrew idioms. They can see the creation story. Ooh, new creation on its way. 
They can see that. They can see the superior God who's defeated the God Dionysus, greater than that God who just invented wine or discovered wine. They're seeing a God who is more powerful than that. And you and I miss that because we're dumb English people and don't understand the complexity of Hebrew thought. And that's why, my Christian friends, we must read the Old Testament. Because you won't, you'll miss a lot of this wonderful complexity if we don't understand the history of God's people. And that's why a great number of you are joining my chronological Bible reading plan on YouTube, so thank you very much. Get involved. But I'm not talking about any of that today. This is a profound story that ends with this verse. I'll read this and then we'll make another observation. This is the first of his miraculous signs, the beginning of his signs. Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. I hinted at it before, but Jesus made this sign not just deeply theological and profoundly spiritual. He made it profoundly personal and practical. Jesus did not perform his first miracle in front of a big crowd at the temple on a feast day. He did not perform his first miracle on a mountainside with masses that had come to him. He did not perform his miracle in front of the high priest or the great emperors of Rome or whatever. He performed his first sign in the environment of an anonymous family, meeting a practical need when only a handful of people were there to see. And in doing this, he revealed his glory. What does that mean? Well, again, because we read the Old Testament, we know that this harkens back to Moses when he says to God in Exodus 33, he says, show me your glory. And God says, fine, I'll do that. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show you my goodness and I'll pronounce my name to you. And Moses goes and he hides in, a, in the inside of a mountain. And God said, my glory is coming. Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. I'm going to show you my glory. And he says this, he says, my name is I am My name is I am. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in love and I am abounding in faithfulness. The glory of God is the revelation of his name and his good nature. The the glory of God is the weighty reality of God's name and God's good nature. And that is what Jesus revealed In this miracle, he revealed the nature of God in a very, very private setting because like Billy Graham, Jesus could stand before the masses and the masses are important. But Jesus also profoundly demonstrates the importance of the ones and the twos. The importance of a one married couple and how important they were to him and how important they were to God. I said before that the, the word there for they have run out of wine 
literally means they have fallen short. I just discovered this this week. It was awesome. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 3. I want you to read this, put it on the screen. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the old religion of law, has been revealed. And the law and the prophets actually spoke about it. This righteousness from God comes through believing in Jesus Christ to all who would believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. But all are also justified freely by his grace through the redemption that Jesus Christ bought. What had happened to this groom? His job was to make preparations. His job was to live up to his word and he failed. He fell short of his honour and his word. And Jesus sees a man that has fallen short and he covers over that sin. In this story, the groom is oblivious to the fact that the wine has run out. He doesn't know. He's eating, he's drinking, he's feasting. Next thing you know, the master comes up to him and says, wow, mate, you've saved the best wine until last. And the groom's like, thanks, mate. Sure I did. Not only has Jesus covered his shortfall, but he makes sure that this groom gets credited with Jesus' work. The groom gets the compliment. The groom wins the gift of Jesus' generosity. Justice is getting what you deserve. And this groom deserved public embarrassment and shame. That was just how the culture worked. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's what it is. He deserved, he had failed, he had fallen short. Justice would be that everyone would know about it. He would be exposed as someone who had failed. And that is how many people, and some of you here today, have viewed God for most of your life. You think it's God's business to expose your shortcomings and to make you feel so bad and so guilty and let everyone know how bad a sinner you are. That's why we have people come to our church and they often, if people haven't been here for a while or, or, or people haven't been to church for years, they come and they say things like, gee, I hope God doesn't strike me today. Better keep your distance from me in case the lightning comes. Why is that? Because we have a view of a God who is just waiting to expose you. Well, that's justice. But Jesus comes along in mercy And he makes sure that this man is not exposed. He understands the mistake and he makes provision for that mistake, even though he didn't know it. And I'm reminded as I read this of Jesus hanging on the cross, looking at guilty people and saying, Father, have mercy on them. They don't even know what they're doing is wrong. But I forgive them. I demonstrate mercy to them. Put your mercy upon them, not justice, but mercy. But justification... They are justified freely by his grace is more than just mercy. You've got justice, which is getting what you've deserved. You've got mercy, which is not getting what you deserve. Phew. But then you've got grace, 
And grace is getting something that you never deserved. Justice is being punished for being in the red and owning up to the fact you are in the red and paying the consequences for that. Mercy is seeing the red come up to zero and you not falling short of the balance sheet. But grace is having stuff put into your account, well into the black. And justification is not God looking at us just as if we never did wrong. Justification is God treating us just as if we only ever did what was right. Because this man was not only shown mercy by Jesus, he was shown grace. And the work of Jesus, the miracle Jesus performed, was credited to his account. He got the applause for it. Well done, groom. You're awesome. You've put the best wine out today. You've done an awesome job. And he gets the credit for the work of somebody else. My Jesus is deeply mysterious. He's deeply spiritual. He's deeply theological. And he is deeply complex. But my Jesus is highly personal. And he's highly practical. And I, for one, want to make sure that when my wine runs out, that he's been invited to my wedding. So have you invited him to your wedding? Because I promise you the wine's going to run out. So demand will always exceed supply. But Jesus is the eternal supply. He is the eternal source. So please invite him to your wedding. Invite him to your party. Invite him to your life. And include him. In this sign, Jesus revealed his glory. He showed what God is like. A God who is willing to show mercy. A God who is willing to extend grace. And those who saw it, believed. And those who believed, experienced that life more than just for a fleeting moment. And here's the crunch. It was only the handful of disciples who believed. The groom benefited for a time, but that groom never received eternal life that day. Had a good wedding. And as good as that is, and as wonderful as that is, but even that wedding only lasted a moment. It was only those who recognized that sign and that believed Jesus was who he said he was that received eternal life. That is the point of this book. The point of this book is deeply theological. It's to make your mind go, oh, God knows what he's doing. All the books make sense. All right? Good on you, God. You're cleverer than I am. This book is deeply practical. But in every practical story, there is an onus on people to respond because these signs are written to help stimulate faith in us to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And so I want to ask you today, do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Because the same Jesus... Yeah, thanks, Mal. Better come slow me down. Um, get, me start, get me finished. Listen, the same Jesus that performed that miracle... A miracle that was done in an invisible place. No one could see that water turn to wine in those pots. No one could see that baby get healed in that pot. 
Kate's growing pot. But that same God performs miracles today. That same God that poured out a baby who was full of life, full of celebration, when all they were told is it was just dead water. That same Jesus performs those miracles today. If you don't know Jesus today, I I want to tell you it is the most important thing. The reason these guys are coming up to the stage is because they're going to give us a chance to respond with words and song. And that's just an important thing to do because I've talked enough. If you don't know Jesus today, this is the most important thing you could do is to know him because knowing him is the key to eternal life. And I want you to consider three things today. A, B and C. That's how I roll. A, I want you to acknowledge him. Just acknowledge that Jesus is present. Invite him to be at your wedding. Invite him to be into your life. Even though you may not fully understand everything about him, acknowledge him. Don't don't keep ignoring him. How can you ignore someone who said, I'm the only way to eternal life? He's either a complete lunatic and should have been locked up. He's an absolute deceptive liar or he truly is who he said he was. Acknowledge him. Be, believe that he is who he said he was. He is who he says he is. A, acknowledge him. B, believe in him. Even if you don't fully know what that means. Say, Jesus, I believe you are the boss and you are the one that can save me from shame. And that you are the one that can give and grant the gift of eternal life. That's probably enough. Acknowledge him. Believe in him. Trust him. And see, begin to cooperate with him. Confess with your mouth. Let your mouth say, Jesus is Lord. And it's such a beautiful name. Jesus, the name Jesus means God saves. He saved that groom. He saved that baby. And as most of us that I know in this room can say, yeah, he's done some saving for me as well. Acknowledge him, believe in him and use your mouth to confess him as Lord. Feel like you can stand with us today? Try not to move around too much. Why don't you just, you can close your eyes. If you trust me, put your hand on your heart. you just say, Jesus, I acknowledge today you are real. I acknowledge you are present with us today. Jesus, I believe you. I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you are the only way to eternal life. God made flesh. I believe that you are Lord and King. And I confess that with my mouth today. And Lord, I want to know you more. No matter how long I've been walking with you, I want to know the reality of your presence more and more and more. I want to experience you. I want to truly walk with you. 
For heaven's sake, I'd never want you to leave my wedding. I admit you are my eternal supply. And I proudly serve you and worship you today. This has been a podcast from Bayside Church International. Thanks for listening.